Hear that? It's the sound of someone whacking the ground with a rake. Specifically, they're beating around the bush, which we've done enough of in this ad too, so let's get right to it. The new moneymaker scratch-off from the Ohio Lottery doesn't beat around the bush. Money maker. Play the game and you could win money, up to $2 million. With more than $88 million in prizes, ranging from $50 to $500, Moneymaker cuts right to the cash. Lottery players are subject to Ohio laws and commission regulations. Play responsibly. Due to the graphic nature of this episode, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes discussions of slavery, sexual abuse, occult practices, execution, and torture that some people may find offensive. We advise extreme caution for children under the age of 13. Betty Paris and Abigail Williams, aged 9 and 11, had been seriously ill for some time. But on February 25, 1692, they took a distinct turn for the worse. They writhed and contorted on the ground. They complained of headaches and a constant sense of impending doom. Both girls convulsed so intensely that they sometimes couldn't breathe or speak until the moment passed. Betty's parents, Samuel and Elizabeth Paris, were away at church. Their ailing daughter and niece were left under the care of their enslaved help, Tituba, and her husband, John Indian. Tituba believed a witch might be responsible for the girls' symptoms, So in the absence of the Puritan adults, she decided to investigate for herself. Tituba persuaded both children to urinate into a small portion of rye meal. Tituba then shaped the grain into a loaf called a witch cake and baked it in the hot ashes of the fireplace. When it was cooked through and cooled, she summoned the family dog. Under Tituba's watchful eyes, the dog eagerly gobbled up his unexpected treat. If it worked, this ritual would make the witch who had cursed the girls feel as if she was being eaten by dogs. Soon, someone in Salem Village should double over in pain and cry out for help. Then Tituba would know who had hurt Betty and Abigail. Though Mr. Paris disapproved of witchcraft, even benevolent practices, surely he would make sure the guilty party was punished and the girls freed from the curse. But if the spell didn't work, Tituba herself would have committed the crime of witchcraft without any proof that her intentions were good. In her effort to help her enslaver's children, Tituba put herself in mortal danger. Picture a murderer, a gangster, a thief. Did you picture a woman? We didn't think so. Society associates men with dangerous crimes. But what happens when the perpetrator is female? Every Wednesday, we examine the psychology, motivations, and atrocities of female criminals. Hi, I'm Sammy Nye. And I'm Vanessa Richardson. And you're listening to Female Criminals, a ParCast original. You can find episodes of Female Criminals and all other podcast originals for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. To stream Female Criminals for free on Spotify, just open the app and type Female Criminals in the search bar. 
At ParCast, we're grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. Today's episode is part of our series on Halloween, where we delve into the fascinating traditions behind the world's scariest holiday. If you enjoy this episode of Female Criminals, be sure to check out the rest of the ParCast Presents Halloween feed on Spotify. This week, we're exploring the three women at the center of the infamous Salem witch trials, Tituba, Sarah Good, and Sarah Osborne. We'll discuss the three key factors that combined to create a witch hunt, as well as the months of moral panic and finger-pointing that followed. Next week, we'll take you through the trials themselves, including Tituba's shocking confession that the devil himself was bewitching women in Salem, We'll also cover the women and men who were tortured, imprisoned, and executed as a result of these proceedings. The Salem Witch Museum defines a witch hunt as fear plus a trigger equals a scapegoat. In 17th century Puritan Salem, fear arrived long before the witch trials, the constant fear of eternal damnation. Earthly fears were close at hand as well, with brutal winters, frequent crop failures, and constant warfare. In 1672, the rapidly growing farming community of Salem Village took its first steps towards independence from the more urban Salem town. That year, the village hired its own minister and began collecting its own taxes. But with only about 500 people living in Salem Village, the newly minted community was especially vulnerable to outside attackers and natural disasters. The villagers were constantly watching their backs, and the more frightened they became of the outside world, the more they feared each other as well. Vanessa's going to take over on the psychology here and throughout the episode. Please note Vanessa is not a licensed psychologist or psychiatrist, but she has done a lot of research for this show. Thanks, Sammy. According to John Putnam Demos, a historian and a direct descendant of one of Salem's first witch hunters, 17th century Puritan theology emphasized the belief that humanity is locked in a constant struggle with the devil. Any misfortune was blamed on Satan or one of his minions, predominantly imps and witches. Yet it would be decades before this fear of evil boiled over into real-world witch hunting. Remember, for a witch hunt to occur, fear needs to be paired with both a trigger and a scapegoat. One of Salem's future scapegoats hadn't yet stepped foot on North American shores when Salem Village gained its independence. Tituba is both the most dramatic and the most mysterious figure in the Salem Witch Trials. She has been repeatedly fictionalized, most famously in the Arthur Miller play The Crucible. But we know relatively little about the real Tituba. Even her national origin is unclear. Many historians believe that Tituba was an Arawak woman born in the 1660s. However, Tituba has been traditionally portrayed in fiction as an enslaved African woman and a survivor of the transatlantic slave trade. There are reasons to believe this is a possibility, including her name, which is reminiscent of Titi, a common part of Yoruba female names. 
Yet a third possibility is that Tituba was multiracial, which would explain why, even during her life, there seemed to be some confusion about her racial identity. For now, most of the surviving evidence supports the belief that Tituba was an Arawak woman. The Arawak tribe lived in Venezuela and Guyana for at least 2,000 years until Spanish colonization drove them nearly to extinction. Around the time of Tituba's birth, Arawak people were frequently enslaved by colonists in the Caribbean. Historian Elaine G. Breslau uncovered documents suggesting that Tituba was among 20 Arawak women and children sold into slavery by British slave trader Peter Roth between 1674 and 1676. Tituba was likely between the ages of 9 and 14 when she was torn away from her family and forced onto Roth's ship. Before that time, she probably lived a quiet farmer's life, rarely seeing people outside her small tribal unit. She must have been completely confused and terrified. She was first purchased in the mid-1670s by an unknown woman in Barbados, whom Tituba later described as a witch. She claimed she refused to join in the practice of witchcraft, but she learned certain charms and procedures to protect people against witches. Tituba's next enslaver was Englishman and Harvard graduate Samuel Paris. He moved to Barbados in 1673 at the age of 20 after inheriting his father's plantation on the island. When he first acquired the teenaged Tituba, Paris was a bachelor with no children. Paris may have sexually abused Tituba during her time working for him in Barbados. Such abuse was common and even seen as economically advantageous, as any child of an enslaved person was treated as the property of the slaveholder. Whether or not her abuse was sexual in nature, Tituba was ill-treated by Samuel Paris throughout her life. He frequently beat her and forced his own Puritan beliefs onto her. Samuel Paris, unlike his late father, was not a gifted merchant or farmer. Over several years, a series of unfavorable weather events and crop failures convinced him to return to Boston and pursue further education. In 1680, when Samuel Paris left Barbados for Massachusetts, he brought with him three enslaved people, Tituba, a man named John Indian, and a boy of African descent. Sadly, the unknown boy died shortly after the voyage. John Indian and Tituba were married shortly after arriving in Massachusetts. Tituba would have been about 20 years old at this time. The marriage was likely ordered by Samuel Paris in the hope that they'd have children. Tituba and John Indian did have a daughter named Violet. Very little is known about her, but it's generally believed she was born not long after the marriage. The household and Tituba's duties expanded again when Samuel married Elizabeth Eldridge in 1680. Their first child, Thomas, was born in 1881. In 1882, they welcomed Elizabeth Jr., nicknamed Betty. Tituba was responsible for the care of both Paris children, as well as her own daughter. According to historians Emily West and Aaron Shearer, many enslaved mothers were forced to nurse slaveholders' infants alongside their own. The needs of their own families always came second to raising the slaveholders' children. 
after their daily tasks were done, enslaved mothers entered a second shift, often staying up all night doing domestic tasks like mending their children's clothes. We don't know for certain if Tituba was forced to breastfeed Thomas or Betty, but this would have been consistent with slaveholders' practices at the time. We do know that Tituba was particularly fond of Betty. While Tituba cared for his children, Samuel Paris studied for a new career as a Puritan minister. In 1686, at age 33, he completed his education and started preaching. At first, he just filled in occasionally for absent ministers around the area. It took some time to perfect his oration and learn to manage a congregation, but eventually, Paris was ready to lead a Puritan church. Puritanism was a hard religion for hard times. Colonizers in Massachusetts faced war, poverty, starvation, and disease. The Puritans believed in the constant presence of the devil and his henchmen, and it helped to explain the frequent tragedies they experienced. Their eternal quest for moral purity gave meaning to their struggles. Tituba had converted to Puritanism in Barbados, but now that her slaveholder was a minister, the religion took on new importance in her life. If she was perceived as a good Puritan, her slaveholder gained status in the religious community. That, in turn, meant better treatment for Tituba. By all accounts, she was an exemplary Puritan. Tituba attended church every Sunday, and she prayed as fervently as any other man or woman in the congregation. But try as she might, Tituba was never truly accepted by the Puritans, not even by Samuel Paris. To accept Tituba as an equal member of the congregation would mean believing she had the same value to God as a white person. That, of course, was antithetical to the cultural and religious beliefs that allowed for slavery. Samuel Paris saw Tituba and her religious devotion as a means to an end. He pointed to the piety of the enslaved members of his household as a demonstration of his ability to convert new Puritans and guide them in their religious education. Soon, he would have a far more nefarious purpose for Tituba, one that would put her at the center of one of the most shameful chapters in American history. Coming up, Salem Village's belief in witchcraft focuses on three unconventional women, and Reverend Paris fans the flames of fear. Now, back to the story. In the 1680s, Salem Village was a small, strictly Puritan farming community trying to find its way in a dangerous, rapidly changing world. Beset on all sides by existential threats, the villagers clung tightly to their restrictive religion because it seemed like the only thing they could count on. Puritan women didn't participate in church leadership or town meetings, nor were they encouraged to voice their opinions in social gatherings. A woman's purpose in life was to provide for the happiness of her husband. Puritan ministers preached that the human soul had two halves, the immortal, or male, part and the mortal, female part. Thus, women were viewed as naturally subordinate to men, and they required male leadership to protect them from satanic temptation. Puritan girls were treated as the property of their fathers until marriage. Then, their lives were controlled entirely by their husbands. 
This system was supposed to protect women from the temptation to sin. In reality, it meant that women's lives were completely at the mercy of men. One such life was that of Sarah Good. Born in 1653, she was a wealthy young woman with a significant dowry. But when Sarah was 18, her father died of suicide. With no means to support her children, Sarah's mother was forced to immediately remarry. This quick marriage probably saved the family from starvation, but it was at the expense of Sarah's inheritance. Her new stepfather seized all of her father's land for himself. In 1682, 29-year-old Sarah and her siblings sued for their land. Sarah was awarded three acres, but her stepfather still wouldn't turn them over. Perhaps this was because that same year, Sarah married an indentured servant named Daniel Poole. Given Poole's lack of resources and lower social class, it's unlikely Sarah's mother or stepfather approved of the union. Poole seemed to think he'd married an heiress, even though her land was still tied up in the courts. According to Mary Lynn K. Roach's book on the Salem Witch Trials, he bought custom-made clothes for himself and Sarah, running up a debt of 7 pounds, 18 shillings, and 2 pence. That's about $1,500 today. Perhaps he needed a suit because he intended to seek a better-paying job. Instead, he died suddenly, leaving the tailor's bill unpaid. Sarah followed in her mother's footsteps, remarrying as soon as possible after Poole's death. In February of 1683, she married William Good, a trained weaver. Her stepfather thought this was a better match than the first marriage and finally agreed to sign over Sarah's three acres. Of course, not to her, but to her husband. Daniel Poole's tailor somehow got word of the small windfall and sued for his unpaid bill. The lawsuit forced William Good to sell part of his wife's land, and by the end of the year, he'd sold the rest of it off to pay for other expenses. He apparently never found work as a weaver, nor as anything else. Once the money from Sarah's land was gone, the Goods could no longer afford housing. They stayed with various friends and family members, but Sarah's unpleasant personality led to their eviction each time. Sarah Good had a short temper and constantly smoked a wooden pipe. Her appearance must have been unkempt because some people refused her housing on the belief that she had smallpox, yet she retained the haughty disposition of an heiress. She often begged for alms, but villagers claimed she complained when the amount given was too small. Having lost a parent to suicide at a young age, Sarah started her adult life with a deep psychological wound. According to psychologist Dr. Deborah Serrani, who specializes in depression, it's typical for survivors of suicide loss to struggle for many years with their grief. They may even develop post-traumatic stress disorder. As a survivor of suicide loss without access to modern mental health care, Sarah Good may have been seen by others as an unkind or bitter person, when in reality she was dealing with complex grief. We don't know exactly when the Goods moved to Salem Village, but they were there by 1688, when they welcomed a daughter, Dorcas. Around the same time, they stopped attending church services, 
known as meetings, because their clothes were too ragged to be worn in a house of God. Sarah Good's poor temperament, panhandling, and failure to attend church did not endear her to Salem Village. If Tituba strove to be the ideal Puritan believer, Sarah seemed to have the opposite intentions. Soon after the Goods moved to Salem Village, people started gossiping about her, openly wishing she'd go back to wherever she came from. And Sarah Good wasn't the only woman in town who refused to fit into the box assigned to her by Puritanism. There was another middle-aged woman in town whose behavior had raised a few hackles among church members. Coincidentally, the other Salem Village iconoclast was also named Sarah. Born in 1643, Sarah Warren started her life as a proper New Englander. She eventually married Robert Prince, who owned a 150-acre farm in Salem Village. By all accounts, the 25-year-old wife initially fulfilled the social role of a Puritan woman. She had two sons with Robert Prince, James in 1668 and Joseph in 1672. But two years after their second son was born, Robert Prince died. His widow was to care for the farm until the boys came of age in their mid-teens, at which point they would inherit the entirety of their father's estate. If she hadn't remarried by that point, social expectations dictated that the boys should use part of their income to care for their mother. But Sarah felt she deserved to keep the land for herself, and she felt she deserved some male companionship in her widowhood, too. As soon as her husband's coffin was closed, she hired Alexander Osborne, an Irish indentured servant. He was likely younger than 31-year-old Sarah. Gossip about their possible sexual relationship spread rapidly across Salem Village. Instead of being shamed into behaving herself, Sarah used her deceased husband's money to pay off Alexander's indenture. The village was completely scandalized. Of course, the rumors were true. Sarah was sleeping with Alexander. Worse still, she soon married him. By 1686, when Sarah turned 43 and her oldest son turned 18, she was calling herself Sarah Osborne. Middle-aged Puritan women in early New England often experienced a significant change in identity after their children left home. Empty nester women suddenly became more assertive and more likely to violate social norms. In a society that valued women primarily for their reproductive potential, women leaving their childbearing years behind felt an increased need to stand out and assert whatever power they did still have. Sarah Osborne seemed to enjoy scandalizing the Puritan establishment. Legally, she wasn't equal to men, but she still had enough power to make quite an impression on them. Piling sin on top of sin, Sarah Osborne refused to turn over her late husband's estate to her sons. She preferred to continue sharing her large, two-level house and 150-acre farm with her second husband. Sarah told her sons they should seek their fortune elsewhere. Instead, in the mid-1680s, they obtained legal counsel and sued their mother. Joseph and James were joined as plaintiffs in the lawsuit by the two executors of their father's will, John and Thomas Putnam. 
When Samuel Paris took over as minister for Salem Village in 1689, Sarah Osborne was 46, sinfully married to her former servant, and embroiled in a legal battle with both of her sons. On the other side of town lived 36-year-old Sarah Good, a cantankerous, homeless vagrant who begged aggressively and failed to attend church services. Reverend Paris was shocked at the behavior of Salem Village's women and vowed to eradicate this problem during his tenure as minister. There were roughly 500 people living in Salem Village when Samuel Paris and his family arrived, bringing Tituba and John Indian with him. Everyone knew everyone. They worshipped together, bought each other's goods, attended the village committee meetings together, and voted together in town elections. As the enslaved Tituba came to know Salem Village, she saw the two sinning Sarahs everywhere. She watched Reverend Paris give alms to Sarah Good and listened to her whisper ungratefully under her breath about the small amount. She saw Sarah Osborne attending church in her luxurious petticoats, holding hands with her inappropriate husband. She heard James and Joseph Prince complaining bitterly about their withheld inheritance. By now, Tituba had lived in Puritan households for 15 years, more than half her life, and knew these women were behaving very badly. She heard her enslavers disparaging the women's character and knew that Samuel Paris, in particular, found them abhorrent. Tituba herself also stood out everywhere she went, but for very different reasons. At the time, there were only about 200 enslaved people of African or native descent in the entire state of Massachusetts. Whenever any of the three women entered a room, people whispered. But Tituba had no idea how very much her fate was intertwined with that of the two Sarahs. If she truly believed in Puritanism, then Tituba also believed that her fate was entirely predestined. And if so, it was a very strange and dangerous path indeed that God had laid out for all three women. 36-year-old Reverend Paris believed he could bring the sinning townspeople to heel by enforcing church procedures more strictly than previous ministers had done. In the past, non-members of the church were allowed to receive communion. Paris now insisted that they leave the building while communion was served. Paris also made the standards for membership in the church more strict. Previously, half-members were recognized. This allowed people who still considered themselves Anglican to worship with the Puritans and made their children eligible for Puritan baptism. Anglicans, or members of the Church of England, were Salem's second most common religious group. But Paris eliminated half-membership entirely and demanded that Anglicans fully convert if they wanted to join the church. This pleased the most dogmatic Puritan villagers, who enjoyed the sense of superiority it gave them to see their new reverend declare some of their neighbors unworthy. However, there were quite a few non-members in the small village, and they weren't pleased with the new exclusionary church policies. Many people still believed that the Church of England ought to be reformed and purified, not abandoned entirely in favor of New England's strict Puritanism. 
Instead of influencing the villagers to behave better, Paris's strict policies and fire and brimstone preaching further divided the town. Suddenly, the small town committee couldn't agree on anything at all. Over the next two years, the factions within Salem Village grew more and more adversarial. Paris's arrival had precipitated this deep division, and therefore the 38-year-old reverend was punished. In the fall of 1691, Paris's detractors took over the Committee of Five, which decided matters related to the church. Almost immediately, they voted to stop providing firewood to heat either the church or the parish house where the Paris family lived. They also stopped collecting taxes for the reverend's salary. Paris's response only fanned the flames. He argued that not only should the town pay his salary and pay to heat the parsonage, he should be granted ownership of the parish house as part of his compensation. This hypocrisy hardly endeared him to a congregation that listened to him preach about humility before God and the ennobling qualities of poverty. Soon after the committee's decision, the reverend was reduced to begging. He depended entirely on the church collection plate to feed his family. The children in the Paris household, 10-year-olds Thomas and Abigail and 8-year-old Betty, were old enough to understand adults' speech and attitudes. They were certainly old enough to notice that, suddenly, the house was going unheeded during the winter. Tituba, now 31 years old, was especially close to Betty, who was roughly the same age as her own daughter, Violet. Tituba was also going hungry, due to the family's change in status, but she did her best to comfort the children. As the family's cook, Tituba tried to keep the children healthy with what little food they had. It was important that they eat the cheapest, most abundant grains available to keep them from wasting away over the winter. That meant a lot of rye, the staple grain of Salem. 1691 was a particularly damp year. The Paris home was located on the western side of Salem Village, a swampy meadowland. Crops drying in the fields or in grain silos were dampened. Rain leaked into homes through doors and windows. The Parises would almost certainly have purchased their rye from neighbors close by, so it's very likely the rye they were eating was exposed to excessive moisture. We now know that rye, subjected to unusually damp conditions, can develop a fungus called ergot. According to behavioral psychologist Linda Caporale, Ergot in a batch of rye sometimes looks just like large, discolored grains. But when ingested, ergot causes symptoms similar to the effects of the hallucinogen, LSD. In December of 1691, eight-year-old Betty and her cousin, 10-year-old Abigail, began experimenting with the supernatural. Perhaps they were simply getting older and testing the boundaries— or perhaps these were the first signs of possible ergot poisoning, causing them to see things that others didn't. One of them had heard of the divining tool called a Venus glass, said to reveal what a girl's husband would look like. According to local superstitions, a girl who dropped a raw egg into a glass of water and then looked closely at the egg white as it spread would see the face of her future husband. 
the two girls obtained a beer glass from the cupboard and a raw egg from the pantry. They tiptoed away from adults' watchful eyes, perhaps hiding under a piece of furniture, as was their habit. Then together, they cracked the egg, separated the yolk, and dropped the white into the water, humming with anticipation over what their future might hold. So it was a shock when one of the girls saw a coffin in the water instead of a man's face. Was one of them going to die before she got to marry? Or was one of them meant to marry death itself? Coming up, the horrifying, unexplainable symptoms that led Salem Village to believe a coven of witches was tormenting its children. Now, back to the story. In December of 1691, 10-year-old Abigail Williams and her cousin, 8-year-old Betty Paris, used a popular divining method called a Venus glass. The young girls were trying to catch a glimpse of their future husbands. Instead, one of them saw a coffin in the glass. Already living in an unheated house without enough food to eat, the girls were horrified by what seemed like a terrible omen. They had hoped for a glimpse of an idyllic future with handsome, wealthy husbands. Now, it seemed like their lives were destined only to get worse, and maybe even end. Betty and Abigail grew secretive and withdrawn. They didn't even confide in Tituba, their lifelong caregiver, Instead, they retreated away from the adults to talk in hushed tones about their new fears. As for those adults, on January 1st, 1692, the Reverend's monthly salary again went unpaid. On January 3rd, the Sabbath day, there was a heavy snowfall in the village. The parsonage house was still unheated, as was the church. An angry Samuel Paris preached a fiery sermon, calling out wicked and reprobate men sent by the devil to pester him. Of course, he probably meant the committee of five, but to Betty and Abigail, it must have sounded like he knew all about their disturbing experience with the Venus glass. They had seen death in the water, and now their father was preaching about Satan himself, sending his minions to cause mischief in Salem Village. Luckily for the girls, their father was forced to keep his furious sermon short. Without any firewood, the congregation was too cold to keep sitting in church. They headed home, where they remained concerned about their futures. Then... Betty started complaining of sharp pains in her head. Two weeks later, on January 15, 1692, was the day Tituba later claimed that she had her first vision of a white-haired man in a dark suit who threatened to kill the children. As an enslaved woman, Tituba was the lowest in the household hierarchy besides her own child, Violet. She might have eaten the least desirable and most ergot-infested portions of rye, which could have caused her to have hallucinations, even though the other adults didn't report the same symptoms. Abigail and Betty, on the other hand, suddenly became violently ill. Because of their smaller size, they would have been much more susceptible to ergotism. On January 16, 1692, both girls suddenly started contorting themselves into strange and painful postures. 
Abigail complained of stabbing headaches. During their fits, both girls babbled strangely, apparently unaware of their surroundings. In 1692, most people were unaware of the effects of ergot poisoning. Epilepsy, on the other hand, was widely known. This was the first possible explanation doctors came up with for the girls' behavior. But their contortions didn't quite seem like seizures. And seizures wouldn't explain their strange speech or the constant pain they experienced, even while not having fits. To the Salem villagers, this combination of symptoms seemed more like the product of witchcraft. In early February of 1692, the 38-year-old beggar woman, Sarah Good, knocked at the door of the parsonage, asking for alms. Though the Paris family didn't even have firewood to burn, Sarah Good apparently thought they should make a generous contribution to her living expenses. When they gave her a small amount of money, she scoffed as she walked away. After Sarah Good's visit, everyone in the Paris household suddenly noticed that Betty and Abigail's illness had worsened. Tituba and Elizabeth Paris worked together to apply various home remedies and consulted every physician they could reach. The girls obediently swallowed parsnip seeds, castor oil, and even soot from the fireplace. But none of these home remedies made a dent. As the girls got sicker, they gained a new symptom, constant paralyzing fear. It was as if they were having a perpetual panic attack. Their bodies twisted in ways that should have been impossible. The ergot fungus contains a chemical, lysergic acid, which is one of the two components of the synthetic hallucinogen LSD. When lysergic acid reacts with diethylamine, LSD is the result. So Betty and Abigail were essentially taking a precursor to LSD in unknown and unstable daily doses for weeks or months at a time. That must have been a terrifying experience and would definitely help to explain their constant feelings of panic. They were continuously seeing and feeling things that weren't there. They had unpredictable convulsions day and night. It felt and looked like they were being tortured by some unseen force. Tituba was especially disturbed. She'd seen something of witchcraft in Barbados and privately felt that some witch in the village had put a spell on both girls. Witchcraft was part of the Puritan belief system since at least 1485, when Pope Innocent VIII declared it reality rather than a myth. And Tituba would have heard about goodwife Goody Glover, who was executed for witchcraft in Boston in 1688. The belief in witchcraft allowed New England Puritans to personify their constant battle with the forces of evil. Their religion told them that the devil was behind all of their misfortunes, but that he was invisible and unknowable. If they wanted to punish Satan, the best they could hope to do was capture and harm someone who was in league with him, specifically a witch. On February 24, 1692, Dr. William Griggs was summoned to the Paris house to treat the two ailing girls. Solemn-faced, he declared in an ominous tone that Betty and Abigail were under an evil hand. 
while 39-year-old Reverend Samuel Paris and his wife Elizabeth wondered how to find the culprit, Tituba took matters into her own hands. On February 25th, she baked the now infamous witch cake, intended to out whoever was hurting the girls. Just as fears about witchcraft were common in Puritan New England, so were beliefs about how to combat it. One of the most common was the idea that hurting something affected by a witch's spell would also hurt the caster of the spell. For example, if a farmer believed a curse had caused his pigs to die, he might burn a dead sow's ear, believing that the witch would feel burned. Remember the Salem Witch Museum's formula for a witch hunt? Fear plus trigger equals scapegoat. Fear had existed in Salem Village for years, beginning with the overall harsh realities of colonial life, and worsening when Reverend Paris's preaching began dividing the town. Now, with the girls apparently bewitched, there was a trigger. Tituba was trying to save Betty and Abigail when she baked the witch cake. Unfortunately, the project failed spectacularly. Not only was there no sudden revelation after the family dog consumed the cake, the girl's illness actually got worse. Their hallucinations became more vivid, now taking human form. They saw people flying around the house. These strange people seemed to attack and pinch them. Even when they knew they should have been alone in a room, they could see, hear, and feel people tormenting them. Worse yet, the illness spread to two more girls on that same day, Anne Putnam and Elizabeth Hubbard, the niece of Dr. Griggs. Both of the new victims lived more than a mile from the Paris home, but they too lived on the western edge of Salem Village. They were well within the swampy region of the town, where rye was more likely to be contaminated by ergot. Betty and Abigail had now been sick for nearly two months, so their symptoms were far more advanced than those of the new victims. The two frightened girls noticed that they felt even worse after the baking of the witch cake. On February 26th, they told Samuel and Elizabeth Paris what Tituba had done. They knew she might get in trouble, but the two girls feared that they would die and go to hell if they didn't somehow break free of their bewitchment. Fearing for their children's lives and their souls, the Parises angrily questioned them. They demanded to know what else the girls were hiding. Duly tortured by their illness and their shame over experimenting with divination, the children were ready to confess to almost anything that might make the pain stop. So they told the Parises that Tituba had been flying around the house, biting and pinching them, even when nobody else was in the room. They claimed that they could always see Tituba and what she was doing, even when she was far away. So powerful was the connection forged by her spells. The girls also named Sarah Good and Sarah Osborne as witches. Betty and Abigail knew what adults wanted to hear that the witches were people they already viewed as outsiders, people who were different enough from themselves to be easily dehumanized. In other words, three perfect scapegoats. According to Dr. Neil Burton, scapegoating is a form of the psychological defense mechanism called displacement. 
a person's negative or shameful feelings are displaced onto someone else. Then, by punishing that person, the scapegoater resolves their own discomfort, replacing unpleasant feelings with a sense of self-righteous vindication. If it might make the pain stop, the children were willing to do anything their caregivers wanted. They were too young to think about what their words might mean for the women they accused. Three witches, three scapegoats. The recipe for a witch hunt was complete. Fear, trigger, and scapegoat. Now it would be impossible to prevent chaos and paranoia from taking over Salem Village. Still, Reverend Paris didn't accept these accusations as fact right away. After obtaining religious counsel from other ministers in neighboring villages, he decided to try observation and prayer before anything else. But the very next day, February 27, 1692, young Elizabeth Hubbard complained of worsening symptoms. She reported being stalked by a spectral wolf while walking to her uncle Dr. Griggs' house. After seeing the wolf, she raced to her uncle's house to tell the tale. There, a bevy of concerned adults gathered to examine Elizabeth. Elizabeth, under questioning, named exactly the same woman Betty and Abigail blamed. She said she thought Sarah Good was responsible for her vision of a giant wolf and that Sarah Osborne had been visiting her in spectral form for some time. That was, by the way, the only way Sarah Osborne could have been visiting anyone in February of 1692. She'd taken ill around the same time as the girls and was confined to her bed. To modern people, this might seem like evidence of innocence, but in Salem Village, it was seen as further proof of Sarah Osborne's guilt. If she was sick, that must be either her punishment from God for witchcraft or a cover story to distract others while she rampaged in spectral form. Anne Putnam, who also fell ill after Tituba baked the witch cake, continued to have visions, and she too blamed Sarah Good. She claimed Good appeared to her and pinched her severely, demanding that she sign a book. The disease was spreading. The parents of the four afflicted girls compared symptoms and saw the consistency between their children's stories as absolute proof of witchcraft. Something had to be done, and on February 29, 1692, Anne's father, Thomas Putnam, took action. He traveled to nearby Salem Town, the more urban sister city to Salem Village, and made a formal complaint to the town magistrate. In it, he named Anne Putnam, Elizabeth Hubbard, Betty Paris, and Abigail Williams as victims of witchcraft. As for the accused witches, he wrote down the names Tituba, Sarah Good, and Sarah Osborne. It was no coincidence that these three women were the only suspects named. All of the adults involved stood to benefit in some way if the trio of scapegoats were convicted as witches. Thomas Putnam had sued Sarah Osborne over her refusal to obey her late husband's will, of which he was an executor. If Sarah Osborne was punished for witchcraft, he might finally be able to get a hold of her estate for her two sons and throw the Irish interloper, Alexander Osborne, off the property. 
the boys might even reward him with a share of the 150 acres of land. Reverend Paris was embattled and impoverished by the actions of the Committee of Five. He hadn't been able to heat his home all winter and was dependent on church collections to feed his family. If he could succeed in proving that witches were active in town, he was one step closer to convincing the congregation that his enemies on the committee were actually agents of Satan. As for Dr. Griggs, whose niece was seeing spectral wolves, he was the first person to diagnose Betty and Abigail as bewitched. He stood to gain fame and profit if word spread about his abilities. There were several physicians competing for business in the area, with medicine still largely unregulated in New England. Any competitive advantage was prized. In Salem Town, the magistrates, John Hathorne and Jonathan Corwin, treated Thomas Putnam's complaint seriously. They immediately wrote out warrants for the arrest of all three accused witches. Bright and early on March 1, 1692, Tituba, Sarah Good, and Sarah Osborne were arrested for witchcraft. All three women were dragged before the magistrate for questioning. Word spread fast in the village. Everyone wanted to see the witch's interrogation. None of the three suspects had been popular in Salem Village even before the affliction of the four girls. Now the villagers were rapidly turning into a mob, hellbent on seeing the women punished. Fear had long been a constant in Salem Village. The trigger, the girl's illness, arrived in January. And on March 1st, it became clear who the scapegoats were. The formula for a witch hunt was now complete, but the hunt itself was only just beginning. Thanks again for tuning in to Female Criminals. We'll be back Wednesday with part two of the Salem Witch Trials, when Tituba gives a shocking and incredibly detailed confession. Widespread witch hunts sweep New England, ultimately leading to 150 arrests and the deaths of 24 people. For more information on the Salem Witch Trials, among the many sources we used, we found Mary Lynn K. Roach's book, The Salem Witch Trials, a day-by-day chronicle of a community under siege, extremely helpful to our research. We'd also like to give a special thanks to the Salem Witch Trials Documentary Archive and Transcription Project, a free and public archive of original, contemporary documents. And specifically regarding the life story of Tituba, we are grateful to the writings of historian Elaine G. Breslaw and scholar Sherry Cummings. You can find all episodes of Female Criminals and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite ParCast originals, like Female Criminals, for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Female Criminals on Spotify, just open the app and type Female Criminals in the search bar. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Parcast and Twitter at Parcast Network. We'll see you next time. Female Criminals was created by Max Cutler, is a production of Cutler Media, and is part of the Parcast Network. It is produced by Max and Ron Cutler, with sound design by Michael Langsner. 
Production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Paul Mahler, Maggie Admire, and Travis Clark. This episode of Female Criminals was written by Yelena War and stars Sammy Nye and Vanessa Richardson. Mm-hmm.